Our Father, we thank You that we might come to You. That we might come to You as the One who is the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, as Zechariah speaks of You so often. The One who is omnipotent, authoritative, powerful, sovereign over all things. We come to You, the One who is greatest of all, infinite in all of His being and majesty and wonder. We come to You not only as One who is great, but also One who is compassionate. One who invites us now as followers of Jesus Christ to come to Him as Father. And coming to Him as Father, we find tenderness, love, grace, kindness, gentleness, patience. What an astounding God you are. We thank you that we not only can worship you from a distance, but that we might worship you and approach you intimately, closely. And find you to be our ever-present help. And thank you that you are the one who not only saves us, but you preserve us and keep us in our salvation. Sanctify us in our salvation. Are perfecting us in our salvation and have promised to fully perfect us at the end. Such grace. Thank you, Father, that you have revealed yourself to us. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in this book that we hold in our hands. Thank you that you have not hidden yourself from us. While there are things about you that are far beyond our finite ability to comprehend, you are not a mystery because you have shown us who you are. And might we, as we venture to look into this prophecy this morning, have greater discovery of you as we hear and see your revelation. And might we be transformed by what we find of you in this revelation. Oh, Father, this is, this is to come into your presence and to have an audience with you. Might we not walk away from this occasion with you unchanged, but might we be transformed. And we pray these things in the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. We live in a sinful world. We are well aware of that, but if we are not aware fully, let us listen to what the scriptures have to say about sin and sinners in this world. There is a kind, Proverbs 30 says, who is pure in his own eyes, yet he is not washed from his filthiness. Psalm 10, for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. Behold, David says, Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. 
Peter reminds us in his second epistle, the ungodly counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. It's always been this way. Genesis. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And thus began the story of the great flood that wiped out the population of the earth except for Noah and family. We think we have it bad now. In all sincerity, what was it like then that God wiped out everyone? It seems that our day, though, is particularly heinous. Paul speaks about those kinds of days. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And though they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's Romans 1. You're familiar with it. That could be a theme song for our age, couldn't it? R.C. Sproul wrote about that paragraph in Romans. Despite the scope of this list, he says, it's only partial. It is merely representative of our corruption. If Paul had enumerated all the sins that the Bible spells out, he could have filled an entire epistle and then some. He gives us a representative list that should be enough to stop every mouth and convict every conscience. Surely there is something on the list that we recognize as part of our own experience. You look at the world and you look at all the perversity and the things that are going on in the world. You open up the page of the newspaper, you go to your favorite website for news and and your heart just shudders. And don't you think at times, how long, oh Lord? How long? Will the wicked continue to thrive? And will the righteous continue to be oppressed? When? How long? Something like that had to be on the minds of the Israelites as they went back from Babylon to Judah after their captivity for 70 years in Babylon. They're back in the land, of course, but they were still facing oppression. Oppression that was so strong that it compelled them to be fearful, apathetic, consumed with anxiety, distress. Such that even though they had been commanded to rebuild the temple, even though they had laid the foundation, they laid it all aside. Fifteen years that foundation sat empty and unbuilt upon because of their fear, because of their apathy. And to that people, 
God spoke to the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai working a few months before Zechariah. To exhort those people in Judah to a point of repentance. And to stimulate them to obedient action whereby they would rebuild the temple. And as part of that plan of revelation, God told them something about his nature and something about his plan that would stimulate them to be obedient to him. And Zechariah's prophecy about that revelation, what's God like and what's he going to do, begins with eight visions on the night of February 15, 519 B.C. We've been looking at those eight revelations and Eight visions, and this morning I want to take you to Zechariah chapter 5 and consider two more of those visions. Like a couple of these other visions, these are paired together and they consider a similar theme. And they consider the character of God and His justice towards sin. And that is designed to be both a comfort and a warning to Israel and Judah. It's to be a warning to them about their own sin. And it is to be a comfort to them that God will vanquish all sin fully and finally. We might summarize it this way. God comforts and warns His people with the promise of His judgment on sinners and sin. And again, that's to be comforting to the nation of Israel. And that is to be a warning to the nation of Israel. That God will not withhold His wrath against sin. Sin will be dealt with fully and finally. There are two visions in this chapter. The first begins in verse 1. Let's consider what it was that Zechariah saw in this vision. Then I lifted up my eyes again and looked. And behold, there was a flying scroll. Now you're familiar with scrolls. Old Testament scrolls were made typically either of parchment or of leather. They were made of a number of pieces of those parchment or leather, and they were sewn together so they would make one long strip. The ends of those pieces of parchment or leather were then strapped to, tied to wooden rollers on each end, and then they were written on typically only on one side, and then it was rolled up. And then to read, you would successively Unroll it. The scroll was written in Hebrew, which meant that it was written from right to left, opposite of the way we read. So the scroll was open first to the right, and then the left would be open, the right, right would be rolled up to reveal increasing amount of text. Let's recognize something unusual about this vision. Not that the other visions haven't been unusual, because all of them have been unusual to some degree. But scrolls don't fly. (laughs) Scrolls open. Scrolls roll. They rest. They are written. They are read. They don't fly. In fact, in 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 the scriptures, this is the only instance of a flying scroll. Now, we don't know everything that was intended, but by flying, I think it, we, are, we are meant to understand that this scroll is visible to all. Now, remember the time in which they lived. This is the Old Testament, right? They didn't have the printing press. This is multiple millennia before the Gutenberg press. 
And so not everyone has a copy of the scriptures. There would have been one scripture in the temple typically or one set of scrolls that would accommodate all of the scriptures. And they would come to worship and hear the word read to them. They would memorize it in worship, go home, meditate on what they'd memorized in worship. But not everyone had a scroll, but this scroll everyone saw. And the implication is everyone sees it and everyone is accountable to it. They're all underneath its authority. That it is flying also indicates that it is coming from heaven, it is coming from God, and it is coming with His divine authority. Now there's something else unusual about this scroll. We find that in verse 2. The angel says to Zechariah, what do you see? And he answered, and I answered, I see a flying scroll. And now he tells us something more about it. Its length is 20 cubits and it's with 10 cubits. A cubit is about 18 inches. So it's 30 feet by 15 feet, about 450 square feet. This is no small scroll. And we know from what's written on it that there's not very much written on it. So I think it is written in gigantic letters so that it is flying through the heavens. It is easily readable. What is on this scroll? Some have speculated that this scroll was rolled up as it was flying through the air. And the 30 foot by 20 uh, by 15 foot dimension is it is 30 feet deep or tall. And it is rolled up and it is in diameter about 15 feet. That's possible. I think given the fact that it is written on and it is discernible what it is written on, it is unlikely that that's the case. Some have said that it was fully unrolled. That also seems unlikely because the proportions of this scroll are way out of character with what a normal scroll would be. A normal scroll was about 12, 8 inches tall and up to 20 feet long. And this one has a two-to-one proportion. Typically, it would have been up to a 20-to-one or more proportion. So I think what we really have here is not the entire scroll unrolled, but a portion of the scroll has been revealed to show us one particular thing that God wants us to see. The other item of interest about this scroll is that it is, as Zechariah has noted, 20 cubits in length and 10 cubits in width. You might not remember this. I didn't recognize this when I first read it, but that is the exact dimension of the holy place in the temple, 20 by 10. And it is also the dimension of Solomon's temple, or the porch on Solomon's temple, according to 1 Kings chapter 6. What's the relationship? Well, we dare not speculate too much because the text doesn't tell us what the relationship is other than this that's implied. I think we are meant to understand that there is a connection between this scroll and worship. And there is a connection between this scroll and covenant and this scroll and God. They're to remember as they see the scroll, and they're going to find that more as they read what's on the scroll. They are to remember the covenant God who has made an agreement with them and the conditions for that agreement.
Well, that's what Zechariah saw. Kind of an unusual vision. What does it mean? Well, the meaning is given to us from the angel in verses 3 and 4. And then he said to me, this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. This is not just a scroll. It is a particular kind of scroll. It is, it is not only one with a curse contained in it, but it in fact embodies curse. What's interesting is that word curse is used in the Old Testament a massive amount of times. It's used over 900 times. I did not take the time to look up every occurrence of the word curse in the Old Testament. Which I'd still be in my office if that was the case. What's interesting is that the word curse here appears with the article, the. The curse. And it appears in that form only nine times in the Old Testament. And it is used in a particular kind of way. It is, it is something of a technical term in that sense of the Mosaic Covenant and the curse that is given within the Mosaic Covenant in Deuteronomy 28 to 30, specifically, even more specifically, in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. We find that reference one of those references, Deuteronomy 29:14, God says, "Now not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, this oath, this particular oath. That word oath is the same word curse in Zechariah. I'm making this covenant and this curse with you." And chapters 28 to 30 of Deuteronomy are the conditions of blessing and cursing on the nation of Israel. How will you expect blessing? You will expect blessing as a nation when you obey the covenant that God has made with you. And you can expect cursing from him when you disobey and are rebellious against him. And that was the whole history of Israel in the Old Testament. And there's a tendency of the flesh when... When one would read that to say, ah, it's not that big a deal. I mean, God is gracious, right? We know God is gracious. We know God has a covenant with us. We know God loves us. So it shall be, verse 19 of Deuteronomy 29. Then when he hears the words of this curse, that he will boast, saying, I have peace. Though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. In order to destroy the watered land with the dry. I'm okay with God. It's okay. I can indulge in my sin. And I can keep doing what I'm doing. And it's alright. God doesn't mind. Verse 20. The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him. But rather the anger of the Lord and the jealousy will burn against that man. And every curse which is written in this book will rest on him. And the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. It's not okay. God will curse. And when the angel says, this is the curse. Zechariah and Israel are meant to remember God has promised discipline and judgment on his people if they do not obey. It is a reminder to them that, well, 
they have returned from Babylon and they're back in the land and God has been gracious to them and God has been kind to them. They are still under the law. It is still binding for them. They are still to submit to it. And if they persist in sin, they can expect discipline. And notice this. The angel says this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. I think there he's talking about all of Israel. This is binding over the whole land and this scroll is flying over the whole land and the implication is it is evaluating the entire land. Are you in submission or are you in disobedience? And there are two particular objects of that curse. Notice what he says about them in verse 3, middle of the verse. Surely, everyone who steals will be purged away. End of the verse. And everyone who swears will be purged away. Stealing is a reference to the eighth commandment. Exodus 20. Thou shalt not steal. Cursing or swearing is a reference to the third commandment of the Old Testament. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Exodus chapter 20 verse 7. And in those two commandments, he has addressed both tables of the law. With stealing the second table of the law, man's relationship with fellow man. With not cursing the first table of the law, man's relationship with God. And he is to say to them, if you find yourself, it is as if to say, if you find yourself in violation of either of these commandments, you are in violation of the entire law. God has said you've got to keep the whole thing if you're going to be righteous. And you can't. Remember that the law is given. The primary function of the law is that it is given to mankind. We know this particularly from Romans chapter 7. The law function of the law was to reveal to man their propensity for sin and their inability to be righteous before God. Man cannot save himself. Man is not righteous enough to atone for his own sin. Man is desperate in his own sin. Jesus encapsulates it, Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect, even as my Father in heaven is perfect. And he doesn't mean like you're supposed to be really, really good. No, he means you are to be perfect without sin. That's the function of the law. To show you can't. You're hopeless. As James thinks about the law, he notes this in chapter 2. James chapter 2 verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And as they saw that flying scroll, as Zechariah saw that flying scroll in the heavens and then he related that to Judah, they were to understand, I'm dead because of my sin. And then notice the consequence Of that guilt. And it's the same consequence. For violations of. Both aspects of the law. It's the same violation. It's the same consequence for any violation of the law. He says surely the one who steals. Will be purged 
away. Everyone who swears will be purged away. Now he notes on both, you know, it's on one side and on the other. We don't know. Is it written on the top side and the bottom side? Or is it written in two columns side by side? I tend to think it's written on two columns side by side simply because that's the way it was typically written in the Old Testament. They wouldn't write right on the back side of the scroll. And then it would also be easier to see both, uh, both curses at the same time if they're side by side. And he says in those curses, you will be purged away. But purging means to be removed, exercised. How would they be removed? The angel doesn't tell us how they would be removed, but the Mosaic Covenant gives us a hint in that section that we've already alluded to. Deuteronomy chapter 28, it says in verse 63, It shall come about. That as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and to multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and to destroy you. And you will be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Now remember, in Deuteronomy, that's the second giving of the law. Moses gives this to them as they're about to enter into the promised land under Joshua. And he says, you're about to go in, but if you disobey, you'll be taken out. Of this land. Verse 64. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. And so I think this is a warning to the Israelites, Judas, come back in the land. And God says, okay, you're back in the land, but don't get so complacent with sin that you say, we're safe now. Don't become apathetic about your sin because God can remove you again. He's done it before. He might do it again. And notice the totality of these consequences. That's verse 4. I will make it go forth, declares the Lord of hosts. That is, I will make the scroll go forth. And it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. I think what he means us to understand is there's a place where the thief and the cursor think they are safe. They've gone to the place of refuge. I'm in my house. My doors are locked. The deadbolt is deadbolted. And I am tight and secure. My daughter just moved into a new apartment about a year ago. And they've come up with new things since Regine and I were first in apartments 30 something years ago, 35 years ago. And she moved in and, you know, she showed me, you know, she unlocked the doors. We're helping her get stuff in, closes the door. And there's another deadbolt. And I opened the door and it's like, where's the other? They've got a deadbolt on the inside that can't be opened from the outside. When you're in the apartment, you close that second deadbolt. Nobody else can open that. Not even the apartment manager. You're safe. You're secure. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. The thief says, I'm safe. I'm in my house. Oh, no. The scroll is coming in. And the scroll is coming to evaluate. And the scroll is coming to hold you accountable. And what will the scroll do? It will spend the night 
within the house. And the idea is not just that it's going to spend the night. It's not just, well, you know, 12 hours and it's gone. The idea is it is going to stay there. The word is to lodge. It is staying there until its job is done. And what is its job? It will consume it, the house, with its timber and its stones. It's taking it to the ground. It is raising it. It is decimating it. And what's he saying? When the scroll comes to judge, it will be complete. It will be total, finished. It is a reminder that there is no shortening of the wrath of God. He is astoundingly patient. He does not judge typically immediately after a sin. But he cannot compromise his wrath and justice will be fully accomplished. There are no flesh wounds from the wrath of God. His wrath will be fully satisfied. And friend, if you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you have to understand that. I, I don't mean to be alarmist. I don't, I don't mean to threaten. I don't mean to manipulate. I do mean to speak with clarity about your end if you don't repent. There is no escaping it. And the standard by which you will be evaluated is not your standard, but God's standard. And He will come in to your life and He will evaluate and He will condemn with totality if you do not repent. That's the sixth vision that we have seen. Seventh vision, verses 5 to 7. I think... Zechariah was probably, as was often the case in these chapters, contemplating, thinking about what he had just seen. He's meditating on that vision. The angel captures his attention, verse 5, and says, Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, Now lift up your eyes. Wait a minute, Zechariah, I'm not done. I want to show you something else. Lift up your eyes. Look. And what is this that is going forth? What's What's moving? What's, what's transpiring? Just as an aside, you might watch from this point forward how much movement there is in this chapter. How many different things are moving around. And it is a reminder to us, as the, the great commentator Charles Feinberg has written, that moral forces in the world do not remain stationary or stagnant. There is either progress or retrogression. It's always, you're always moving one direction or the other towards God or away from Him. And we need to be aware of that. Zechariah did not immediately understand. He looked, verse 5. He did not even understand what he saw. So I said, verse 6, what is it? And he said, this is the ephah. Going forth. Ephah is a unit of measurement. It's about five gallons, 22 liters, about five gallons. It's a unit of measurement, but it's also a vessel. So the ESV, I think, translates it basket. That's an appropriate kind of translation because 
It covers both ideas, both the measurement and the basket that would typically hold that amount. And he looks and he sees that ephah, again, moving, flying perhaps, and he said, this is their appearance in all the land. And the question about that verse is, what, what is their appearance? Literally, that word appearance means their eye. How does an ephah, a basket, see? It's a, kind of a conundrum. And so some have suggested that there was a, a scribal error in the manuscript. And they changed the letter ever so slightly to turn... A Y into a W, essentially. It's like just adding a little bit more of a stroke mark to make it a different letter. And that word, if you change that one letter, means iniquity. And so some translations say, this is their iniquity in all the land. And that certainly fits contextually. The problem is, I don't think that's what God said. I think it's their appearance. Appearance is an appropriate translation for the word I. It's just unclear as to what he's talking about. Four other times, Zechariah in this prophecy uses that little phrase that follows the word their I or their appearance. This is their appearance in all the land. Four other times he uses that. He uses it in chapter 1, verse 10, verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 10, and chapter 6, verse 7. 410 is particularly helpful, and especially as it's immediately preceding this vision. For who has despised the day of small things, he says in 410, but these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel, and these are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. These are the eyes of God, that are going out and looking throughout the land. We know that the, what is contained in verse 8 in this ephah is a figure for wickedness. And I think what the vision has us to understand is this is wickedness going throughout the land to see whom can I devour. Just like First Peter 5 eight. Satan is like a roaring lion seeking those whom he might devour. That's exactly what's going on here. Wickedness is looking for those whom it can consume, have domination over, authority over, and rule over. One more part of this vision that he saw, it's given to us in verse 7. Behold, A lead cover was lifted up. That word lead cover is a word for talent. A talent was a measurement of weight, about 75 pounds. And it indicates that on that ephah was something of great weight to hold down, to restrict, to confine what was inside of it. And this is a woman in sitting inside of the ephah. We are 
to understand that the woman is being imprisoned. She's there held down by that lead weight as a provision of security. Now, if you're thinking with me, you're thinking, okay, five gallon, five gallon container. I've got one of those in my garage. And, uh, I've got, you know, miscellaneous tools. At our house, we have two or three of them and they all have garden tools in them, right? So easy access. And no woman fits inside of that. And it's just a good reminder to us, don't press the details, right? We're just meant to understand this is something figurative. It's representative. So don't say a woman can't fit in a five-gallon bucket. That's not the point. You're to understand what does the woman represent. That's what's of importance. Realism isn't of importance. Like the massive scroll, that's not what's important. What is important is what it represents. And so the question is, well, Terry, what does the woman represent? Okay, well, look at me with look with me at verses eight to eleven. And then he said of the woman, this is wickedness. The word wickedness is a very general word for a variety of kinds of civil and religious evil. It's just kind of a the all encompassing. This is bad stuff. Now, some have said. Well, isn't that just like the Bible? And it just isn't that like the prophets? They're picking on the poor women again. And they're, they're, they're classifying women as wicked. That's not what he's doing. The word wicked. Hebrew has a little different structure than we have in English. And it's like a lot of other languages that words have gender attached to them. We don't have that in English. But the word wickedness is of the feminine gender. And so it makes sense that as a feminine gender word, you have a woman in the basket. I think that's the only thing he's trying to say. It's feminine wickedness. I mean, it's wickedness. It's a feminine word. It demands a woman representative of it. That's all that he means by that. This woman is wickedness. And now we do have the angel doing something unusual. Verse 8. And he, the angel, threw her down into the midst of the ephah and cast the lead weight on its opening. So he opens up the ephah so that Zechariah can see what's inside. And the idea is she's getting out to try and wreak havoc on those who are around. And he slams down the lid on top of her after he'd thrown her down to the bottom of the basket. He confines her there, seals her there. Okay, that's it's kind of unusual. It gets more unusual. Then I looked, and there were two parentheses, more women coming out with the wind in their wings. Women don't have wings. Angels don't have wings. Angels aren't women, so these aren't angels as far as we can tell. They're two women, representative, having wings, and they are like the wings of the stork. What do you do with that? Some of you are using a study Bible, and if you are using a study Bible that is common in our church body, you're going to look down at the footnote probably while I'm talking, and you're going to see that The author says something like um, storks were considered unclean according to Old Testament law. They were. And so these storks are taking evil and they're taking it to a place where they can cultivate it and make um, some kind of protest against God in some final form. 
That's certainly a possibility. And I have gleaned much from the author of those notes, but I respectfully disagree. Storks were unclean in the Old Testament. But I want you to notice this. The women were coming out with the wind in their wings. What's notable about that wind, word wind is that word can be translated a variety of kinds of ways. We've already seen it in this book, and we saw it in chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, verse 6, Not by might, nor by power, but by my wind spirit, says the Lord. Same word. I think what is going on in chapter 5 is that the wind of God is the Spirit of God transporting wickedness personified to a place where it will ultimately be destroyed. And we'll see that in just a moment. What is significant here is not the nature of the storks. Storks are unclean. What is significant here is the power and the speed of the storks in which they could carry away the, wicked, the wickedness in the ephah. What's even more important than the speed with which they took it is where they took it. I said to the angel who was speaking with me, verse 10, where are they taking the ephah? And he said to me, verse 11, to build a temple. I love the NAS translation. Um, but this is one of the rare occurrences where I'd say it's probably not the best word, temple. That word temple, it's translated in ESV, which was read for us earlier. It's just the word house. And that's often the way it's translated. It can also refer to a house of worship. It can refer to the house of the Lord's worship. It's been used that way. I think simply he means here to build a temple for her, excuse me, to build a house for her in the land of Shinar. I'm taking it to Shinar to build a house where it will be removed out of the container in which it is imprisoned and will be kept imprisoned there in that house in Shinar. It has a place of habitation where it will be held. Now, I don't know about you. You know, you, you guys are all Americans, so your geography is pitiful. Right? So let's just admit it. We don't know anything. We know where Texas is. That's all we need to know. We don't need to know anything else, and we don't. So my guess is most of you, and I think I heard an amen, some of you um, are maybe wondering, where in the world is Shinar? What's a Shinar? What's a Shinarian? Well, Shinar is simply another name for Babylon. They're taking him to taking her wickedness to Babylon. You remember Babylon? It first showed up in the Bible in Genesis chapter 11, verse 2, where the people of Babel started to build a temple or build a tower in rebellion against God. And through the ages... Babylon has represented the rebellion against God. Says one commentator, it is the very fountainhead of anti-theocratic social, political, and religious ideology. It is the picture of everything that is against God. So wickedness 
is being taken by God to the place where it belongs. And it's being held and imprisoned there. We should also recognize that Babylon will represent the ultimate, final, great rebellion against God. And in case you were wondering, why did we read Revelation 18 this morning? I mean, that was kind of unusual because Revelation 18 is one of the places where Babylon is referenced in the book of Revelation. Every time Babylon is mentioned in Revelation, it is not only mentioned in reference to its rebellion against God, every time it is mentioned in reference to her destruction. Chapter 14. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Chapter 16, verse 19. And the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered by before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Chapter 18, verse 2. And he cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great Chapter 18, verse 10, standing at a great distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. In fact, it's not just in those two verses. It's that whole chapter that says Babylon will be destroyed. And here's how the vision is working. It's saying, I'm taking away wickedness to Destroy it. Now that's a comfort, isn't it? Wickedness doesn't win. You go outside these walls and it sure doesn't look that way, does it? Your heart just breaks at the horror of what is happening in our culture. And while I was at the counseling conference yesterday with Keith and a couple of hundred other people, and I heard lots of stories about the horror of sin. And your heart just breaks for people that have been so harmed. And you say, when is it going to end? And God says, I'm taking it away for the purpose of destroying it. Don't you fret. It's coming. But it's also a warning, isn't it? So the Judah, who's been in rebellion now, back in the land, but they're in rebellion and disobedience. They haven't built the temple. It's a warning. If you persist, I'm cleansing the land. In fact, that's one of the themes of this particular vision is that God is purifying, God is sanctifying, God is making holy. We sing that, saw that first in chapter 2, verse 12. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the holy land. And he will again choose Jerusalem. God will make his nation, his land, his people holy. That's his end. 
We saw that in chapter 3, Joshua, the high priest, is clothed with filthy garments. Verse 4, chapter 3, remove the filthy garments from him and and say to him, see, I have taken away your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with festal robes. I've removed your sin and I've imputed you with righteousness. That's God's end is to make people holy and righteous. This is a warning. I will deal with sin, but be careful that you're not part of the dealing with the sin. God will not tolerate sin among his people. Those are the two visions. What are we to understand about these visions? What do they teach us about God? What's interesting about these visions is that in both of these visions, there's no oracle. Most of the visions have what's called an oracle. It's a declaration. It's to help us understand what does God mean us to know about himself in these visions. And these visions don't contain an oracle, though things are very clearly implied. Let me draw out for you five implications about God. First, be mindful. The law of sowing and reaping is God's law. Remember, the first vision is about the Mosaic Covenant and the conditions under which they will experience God's blessing or God's cursing. If you obey, there's blessing. If you disobey, there's cursing. There's discipline. And that same principle, though the Mosaic Law is not binding for us as New Testament believers. That same principle is alive and well today. Galatians chapter 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And then he clarifies, for the one who sows to his own flesh will reap for the will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You disobey and rebel against God and you will reap the consequences of that. And if you obey God and follow after Him and live under the power of the Spirit of God, you will reap the blessings of that. So then, he says, in conclusion, verse 9, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. And we're to be reminded that the scriptures are given to evaluate our lives and they will be evaluated and God will dispense appropriate judgment, discipline and blessing according to how we have functioned and how we're living. I don't mean by that that we can merit our own salvation, but I do mean to say by that that if we live in rebellion against God, he will punish. We can be absolutely sure of that. And if we submit to him, And appeal to him for his imputed righteousness. And then live according to that righteousness. He will bless. Parents this is this is one of our. This is one of our primary jobs as parents. To teach our children this principle. They they need to experience that sometimes. Sometimes discipline judgment. In anticipation that God will pour out wrath on them. If they don't change. And they need to experience grace so that they understand that God has provided for them what they cannot do on their own. And you need to hold those things in tension. Some of you are more prone towards wrath. You need to apply grace more often so your children can see grace. Some of you are prone to be always gracious. You want to remove every consequence. You don't want them to hurt. 
Children never believe this. I didn't when I was a kid. I believe it now. When a parent says, this hurts me more than it does you, as you're about to apply the rod of correction. It does. Your heart just breaks. And you want to pull that punch, so to speak. And, and, and you want to withhold the wrath. Don't do it. Because you're training them. God will overlook. He doesn't care. He won't discipline. He will. We need to hold those things in tension. Secondly, be sober. Our problem is not our problem is inside of us, not outside of us. Why was Judah slow to rebuild the temple? Because they were worried about Medo-Persia. They were worried about outside forces. That's where they thought the threat was. They saw her only problem. She saw her only problem as being outside of her. And these two visions remind her, your problems are inside of you. Your problem is you. We live in a perverse culture. But our greatest problem is us. Terry's biggest problem in this world is Terry. One of the London newspapers a century or more ago wrote an editorial in which they concluded by saying, what is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton answered, dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. He got it dead on. In fact, can I just submit to you? That there is a sense in which our sins as believers are worse than the world's sins. Because the world is doing only what the world knows to do. They can do nothing else. But as believers in Jesus Christ, you and I have been given the Spirit of God. And when we willfully sin, we are going against our nature. There's an even greater, can I use the word wickedness to that? My problem is not what's outside of me. My problem is what is inside of me. My flesh. My propensity towards sin and rebellion. I think we should speak for righteousness in this world and we should evangelize and it is more than appropriate to vote and it is more than appropriate to plead and ask people to change and, and be a voice for reason in a culture that is unreasonable. But we should not be surprised when the world does what the world does. It's always been that way. And these visions are a reminder to every person of God that sin is an ever-present danger in all of us. So we should be more concerned about our own propensity to engage in fleshly indulgences than we are concerned about sin in the world. Be sober. Third, be warned. God will punish or God will discipline all sinners. Wickedness is looking to devour and consume sinners. We saw that in verse 6. God is omniscient in his vision and he and his word will judge every sin of every sinner everywhere. That's the certainty of verse four, right? That scroll is coming. It is coming into the house. It is looking. It is examining. There's no escaping. 
And that vision, particularly that first vision, reminds us that there is never a good end to sin. Never. And you're going to walk out of here and you're going to go home and you're going to flip on the TV perhaps this afternoon and watch the cowboy game or watch a movie or watch something else or you're going to go check out a news source. You're going to drive down the road and see a billboard and there's going to be something that flashes something that you, that you know is sin and it's going to look good. There's never a good end to it. You need to look past the goodness of it. To see the end of it. Now the believer in Jesus Christ. Never needs to worry about final destruction. If you're in Christ. You're in Christ. You're safe. But the believer does need to worry about losing reward. You can get to heaven. And you can get in heaven. And you can have been so consumed with this world. And wanting things in this world. That you lose everything except your salvation. All the reward is gone. I said it yesterday. Nobody when they get to heaven is going to say, oh man, I never got the iPhone 13. I really wanted that. I'm so disappointed. Not going to happen. Whatever it is, that thing that you want, you won't be disappointed in heaven. If you give it up here, be warned, God will discipline. Beware of dabbling in sin. Oh, I've got more to say. I must hasten on. Be encouraged. God will forgive all repentant sinners. Remember verse 11? I kind of jumped over something there. And the removal of the wickedness to Shinar. God removes the sin from the people. It's a protection for the nation of Israel. He's removing the sin to purify the land, to make it holy. And it's pointing to the ultimate destruction of sin. There's another similar image to that in the Old Testament. Can you think of a time in the Old Testament where God talks about taking sin and removing it out of the land? How about Leviticus 16? There's two goats Lots are cast for the two goats. One is the Lord's goat. That one gets sacrificed as atonement on the day of atonement for the nation's sins. And the other one is the scapegoat. Then Aaron, Leviticus 16:9, shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord. To make atonement upon it. To send it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. And it was a picture. The sins of the nation are on that goat. And what does God do to that goat? He takes it into the wilderness. Where it will never be found again. The sin is removed from the nation. There is something of that in this picture in Zechariah 5. God's removing sin to sanctify his people. What happened on the day of atonement 
was temporary. What will happen on the day of Shinar is permanent. The sin will be vanquished. Oh, friend, be encouraged over God's end for sin. God is not demanding perfection from you. In fact, He is removing the sin for you. And He provides an imputed righteousness for all repentant sinners. Remember chapter 1 where He calls them to repentance? He calls them to repentance so that He might impute His righteousness to them. Friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, understand that this vision is a picture of what God is doing for you. He's wanting to take your sin. And He is wanting to grant to you a righteousness that is not yours, but will change you so that you no longer do the things that your heart wants to do. And if you turn in repentance to Christ, He will save you from His wrath and save you from your sins so that you don't persist in it. And He will cleanse you to live righteously. God takes your sin seriously. He will hold you accountable, but He has made a means available for you to be forgiven. Oh, friend, if you're not a believer, please hear that this morning. There's a means of salvation for you. Finally, be hopeful. God will destroy all sin. We've already alluded to this. Look this afternoon, perhaps, at Revelation chapter 20. These visions are looking beyond 519 B.C. and they're looking to the time when Satan and sin will be fully vanquished, destroyed in the lake of fire, there to abide forever. And sin will never come out again. At the cross, Jesus Christ defeated sin and death. That's our hope. These visions are a reminder of the horridness of sin. There's no good end to sin. It's never profitable. But there is a good end of sin in that it will be vanquished. Christ has defeated it and Christ will defeat it. Father, thank you this morning for these sober reminders. They're sobering. They tell us about the seriousness of sin. And that's good for us to hear because we're way too prone to not think seriously about our sins. We're too quick to coddle them, too quick to cultivate them, too quick to excuse them. And don't understand your hatred of them. And so, Father, thank you for these reminders about that. And thank you for these reminders as well that you will take it and destroy it ultimately. And you have provided a means through Jesus Christ by which we can be protected from that destruction. So might we be encouraged this morning and might we be warned this morning. To the praise of Christ our Savior we pray. Amen.